my name is Jason Michelli. Um, I have a book coming out called Living, uh, Living in Sin. Uh, it's a book about marriage. So you can all pull out your phones now and pre-order it. Uh, it comes out in June. Uh, I'm a United Methodist, um, which kind of means I'm an evangelical Anglican, which is kind of, you know, a contradiction in terms. Uh, so I like to think of myself as a Baptist who can read. Um, that's, that's who I am. Uh, but I, I'm a preacher, and so I don't know how to do this without praying first. So uh, if you would humor me and bow your heads. Gracious and almighty God, other than the one with whom we share our life, you know more even than us how we do not deserve the love with which you have loved us. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might help us to see how those in our lives are parables for how you love us and how we might become parables for those that we love. And all of God's people say, Amen. So, in my line of work, Bible stories make convenient shorthand. I'm a Methodist pastor, and so I tell people that I feel like Lazarus. Like Lazarus, I received a reprieve from death. I'm way more impressive than that Connor guy. Uh, you know, like Lazarus, I've received a reprieve from death, but it's temporary. I have something lethal in my marrow, latent in my marrow, an incurable cancer called mantle cell lymphoma. And I tell you that just so you'll feel guilty if you fall asleep. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I have an incurable cancer called mantle cell lymphoma, and it, and it leaves my marriage uh, a peculiar burden to bear. And both of us, my wife and I, we cope with the, the looming possibility of my death, just as we also cope with our failures to live up to the miracle that my reprieve from death has handed me. You know, we think, my wife Allie and I, we think we need our marriage to deserve the miracle that we've been given. When I woke from a surgery, emergency surgery a couple of years ago to a doctor explaining how I had this, this rare incurable cancer percolating in my marrow, I thought it was curtains on the time that God had given to my wife and I. And a couple of years ago, I thought it was closing time. Now, my time is just short. My death is no more likely than yours. None of you are getting out of life alive, sorry. And my death is no more likely than yours, but it's probably nearer than yours. And making the most of the time you've got left, it isn't easy as it sounds. In fact, it's not easy at all because the you that you bring to your new lease on life is still the old you. You're still the you who took everything, God, life, health, family, marriage. You're still the same you who took everything for granted. You know, the Gospel of John says that, that Lazarus comes back to life 
carrying the, the stench of death all over him. And so the, the Lazarus who crawls out of the tomb is unmistakably the Lazarus who was laid in the grave. See, not dying is not automatically the same as a new lease on life. After a year of, of surgeries and stage serious chemo, I learned the inevitable wasn't yet. And I felt bowled over with gratitude, just overwhelmed with gratitude. And so I made a bucket list. That's what you're supposed to do, right? I made a bucket list. Number three, spend more time with my friends. Number seven, take my job less seriously. And number two, be less of an asshat to my wife. You know, it turns out bucket lists are like New Year's resolutions. What's true about us when it comes to yoga and CrossFit is true about us in relationships, too. The only consistent thing about us is our inconsistency. As soon as maintenance, chemo, and, and my monthly CT scans became the new normal, the old normal returned, just rearranged to accommodate my cancer. And in no time at all, I was like that beautiful house in the Talking Heads song. Same as it ever was. Since maintenance chemo is a quick way to, to blow through a, a copay in an afternoon, uh, Allie and I, we had committed to, to spend less and save more. When I say we committed to spend less and save more, I mean, of course, that I nodded yes when my wife asked me if I promised to stop spending money on crap and stupid shit. If you're unclear as to the fine, wine-like distinctions between crap on the one hand and stupid shit on the other, then you can ask my wife for clarification. I suspect the, the camouflage Snuggie I bought her for Valentine's Day as a, as a gift, that would qualify as crap. While the Gandalf staff and robe I purchased for me at the Renaissance Festival for upwards of a car payment, that would count, specifically count, as stupid shit. <laughs> You know, attempting to heed my promise to change my spending habits in the months after my recovery, I had avoided what for me was the siren song pull that, that porn has on lesser men. For me, it was TV infomercials. Now I'm a complete sucker for infomercials. A pushover, my wife Allie would say. I'm an easy mark. For example, if I was serving the channels and I heard the words, set it and forget it, forget about it. I was hooked, convinced I absolutely needed to be able to rotisserie six chickens at one time. <laughs> if I was flipping the channels and came across an infomercial for the, for the forearm max, I'd spend the next two hours of my life shamefully amazed that I'd made it this far in life with forearms as pathetic as mine. If I saw the commercial for the shake weight, my first thought was never, well, that seems to stimulate something that violates the book of Leviticus, something that, that my grandmother said would make me go blind. No, my first thought was always, that looks like something I need. And to that end, I suggested to Allie that we cut the cord and we get rid of our cable, thereby evicting the, the pusher from the crack den of crap. And I should have realized what a mistake I was making. My son Gabriel and I, we, we went to Whole Foods to get some fish. 
And at that point, I'd been on the infomercial wagon for three months, two weeks, and four days. <laughs> but guess what we discovered they were doing back by the seafood section of Whole Foods? A product demonstration. <laughs> the person doing the demonstration was a, a woman in her 20s or 30s. For some inexplicable yet very effective reason, she was wearing a black evening dress that reminded me of the one worn by Angelina Jolie and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which got me to thinking of myself as Brad Pitt with Angelina Jolie <laughs> and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Hey, let's stick around and watch this, I said to Gabriel, who smacked his forehead again with here-we-go-again embarrassment. In addition to the, the slinky dress, the demonstrator was wearing a, a Madonna mic which pumped her bedroom voice through the speakers, beckoning all the men in the store to obey her siren call. The product she was demonstrating that day was the Vitamix. You have one? Ever seen one? If you've never uh, recovered from the stock market crash of 2008, then you might not know that the Vitamix is like the Bentley of blenders. Angelina pulled the Vitamix out of its box like a, a jeweler at Tiffany's. And, and then she went into her shtick. The, the Vitamix is a high-powered blending machine for your home or office. It's redefining what a, a blender can do. The, the Vitamix will solve all of your blending problems. With this one product, she said, with this one product, you won't need any of those other tools and appliances taking up so much space in your kitchen. And as she spoke, I wasn't thinking... Who needs a high-powered blender for their office? <laughs> Why does a blender need refining? It's, it's just a blender. If space is an issue in your kitchen, then a blender with more horsepower than a Prius, is, is that's really the solution? No, I was thinking, this could solve all my blending problems. <laughs> if I have this one thing, I won't need anything else. And I looked down at my side, and, and whether because he likes to cook or because he was nearing puberty, Gabriel was transfixed too. The first part of her demo, she showed off the Vitamix's many juicing and, and blending capabilities. But, but then to display the diversity of the, the product's features, she asked the crowd, who enjoys pesto? And like a brown-nosing boy, desperate to impress the teacher, the, the teacher he has a crush on, I raised my hand and I spoke up, I do. I'm Italian after all. And she smiled at me, only at me. And she said, I've always had a thing for Italians. <laughs> Can you cook, she asked. And I nodded my head, like Fonzie, too cool for words. Even better, she said. I went to Princeton. I volunteered like an overly eager 40-year-old virgin. And then she pretended to be speaking to the entire crowd, even though I knew at that point she only cared about me. Have you ever noticed how the pesto you buy in the supermarket never looks fresh? It's dark and it's oily. And all of us, we nodded like Stepford husbands. But when you try to make pesto at home, she said, and she held up her hands like this was a problem on par with, with AIDS or, or world hunger or Russian interference in our electoral process. She said food processors and traditional blenders just won't do, will they? And then she looked my way like I was a plant in the audience, hypnotized and dutiful and desperately wanting to do right by her. I said, no, no, they won't do. <laughs> Even though I've been making pesto since I was 10 years old and I can't say I've ever had a problem. She licked some of the pesto off her spoon as though it were a, a man's sickle. And, and then she said in her come hither voice, I'm not married. 
sigh. But if I was, this is what I'd want from my husband on Valentine's Day. I drove my new Vitamix home that afternoon. <laughs> and I showed it to my wife, Allie, presenting it to her like a, a hunter-gatherer, laying his bounty at the foot of his lady's cave. And then I got right back in my car and drove it to the store in order to return it. And driving back to Whole Foods, I'd broken my promise. It's a, it's a stupid, funny, for instance. Yeah, but driving back to the store, I still loathed myself more than a little for failing to abide by the simple promise I'd made to her. Before I got in the car, Allie just shook her head. You're an idiot, she said, rolling her eyes at me and kissing me on the neck. And not knowing I could see her as she walked away, I saw that she smiled. And seeing her smile, seeing her smile, I, I knew. I knew I would spend myself empty to keep being known like that. And yet loved. And loved beyond deserving. My wife and I, we can't have any more kids. That's what you give up when you get stage serious cancer. Likely, it's why the doctor asked if I wanted to spank off a sample before I started chemo. It left me infertile. Meanwhile, the incurable nature of my cancer left us ineligible to adopt. My odds are worse than Katniss's, and so I'd a poor bet for an adoptive parent. And if we'd had another child, though, a, a daughter, you know, I like to think we would have named her after that word that Allie conveys to me. Grace. I mean, everyone who comes to a Mockingbird conference, right, you all know already that, that grace is the Bible's word for unmerited, unexpected, one-way love. Yeah, but it's, it's ironic, though. You know, we assume that it takes two to make a marriage work, right? We take it for granted that in order for a relationship to be loving, both partners must be investing love actively so into it. And yet, this is the opposite of how our relationship with God works. Now, why then should we suppose that our relationships with one another work any different? Our relationship with the capital B, beloved, works by the operation of grace. One-way love. And so does, despite the assumptions in all of the relationship books, so does our relationship with our lowercase beloved. You know, married couples rarely come to my office when their marriage is in a good place. And that's a shame, too, because when neither spouse is hostile or defensive or bearing grudges, that's when both of them are most likely to hear honest feedback. You see, it's only in the absence of threat, in other words, that people are willing to change their habits and try out new skills. It's only in the presence of grace that you can repent, as Jeff said upstairs. Nonetheless, like an overweight 55-year-old who waits until it feels like an elephant is standing on his chest to go for a routine checkup, most couples wait until their, their marriage is about five calories away from quadruple bypass to seek counseling from a pastor like me. 
And when couples wait that long, no matter the issues in their marriage, the, the conversation usually plays out the same way in my office. I, I feel like a, a referee at a tennis match, watching the accusations and hurt volley back and forth, neither willing to stop until someone declares the scorekeeping in their favor. You know, marriages can get like that, tit for tat, tit for tat, tit for tat. Resentment and recrimination build until they feel powerless to respond. The hurt becomes habituated, and before you know it, the tit-for-tat has just become your marital banter. You know, a lot of times, couples get stuck in the tit-for-tat. They'll contend that they won't change until the other person changes. And while that may sound like equity and justice in another context, in the context of a marriage, it's insanity. It's mutually assured destruction. And it's antithetical to the one-way love with which we're loved by God. You know, contrary to the cliches, if grace is true, then for marriages stuck in a a tit-for-tat spiral, it only takes one person to begin the process of change and healing. That is, for, for marriages experiencing strain and sadness, marriages bowing under the weight of bad habits and, and burdensome expectations. Healing, and, and don't even talk to me about expectations after you've survived something like what I have. And after all that, healing can begin with only one spouse showing the other grace. Undeserved, unexpected, one-way love. One of the things I've learned about marriage, and one of the things I've, I've seen firsthand in my own, is that yes, it takes two to make a marriage, but it only takes one to start the process of healing and change. And if grace is the way by which God rescues us from our sin, then then one-way love is sufficient to to prime the pump, to change the dynamic, and and to break the the log jams in our own relationships. You know, Allie always gets her way, so other than, you know, naming our daughter Grace, she probably would have named her Eleanor instead. She got her way with the Vitamix, too. I'll do better, I said, before I drove the the Vitamix back to Whole Foods. The Nimbus-like letters making up the word idiot kind of hung in the air above us. "Uh Uh-huh, she said, still smiling, kind of. (coughs) What? I said, "I, I, I will do better. Jason, she said, you can't even stop yourself from eating an entire jar of pickles once it's opened. And it's true. Back when I was in the middle of one of my rounds of chemo, I would found a, an op- open jar of kosher dills hidden in the back of the fridge, and, and I ate one. And then I quickly ate all of them, just like I'd done so many times before. Only this time, my white count and my blood chemistry were, were all out of whack. And so I, I instantly had the runs. And standing up from the toilet, my sodium level, having gone from like zero to a gazillion in an instant, uh, I passed out on the bathroom floor. I'm pretty sure it's never a good idea to eat an entire jar of pickles, my oncologist had told me the next day. <laughs> but I love pickles so much, I said. You know, if Allie were to wait for me to become what she graciously grants to me, then we'd need more time together than the bell curve wagers I've got left. Instead, thank God, 
She treats me as the husband I wish I were to her. As a pastor, it's always struck me as odd and ironic that when it comes to our relationships with God, nearly every Christian and every non-Christian I've ever met will slam their fists and insist, as though their very lives are at stake, that they are, but they will insist that they have free will. And yet when it comes to our, our closest approximation to our relationship with God, our relationship with our lovers, our, our everyday experience invalidates what we insist is true about our Sunday lover. You know, whenever we, we speak of our bedmates, we use the passive voice, right? Something drew us together. I, I just knew she was the one. Yeah, but whenever we speak of God, we use wrongly, I'm told by Scripture, we use wrongly the active voice. I, I invited Christ into my heart. Come forward and give your life to God. I got myself saved. I've decided to follow Jesus. It's my least favorite hymn of all time. You know, for both our, our spouse and our Savior, Stevie Ray Vaughan got it right. We're love-struck. You know, I think fell is the exact right word to use because the operation of love upon us is passive. You know, we, we stumble upon and we stumble into each other's lives like hikers into a hole, and then we discover we kind of like it there. You know, if we acknowledge how we have so little agency of our own when it comes to the one with whom we share our body, then why are we so adamant to insist that we do so when it comes to the one we share eternity with? As professor of psychology, Timothy Wilson at UVA back in Virginia says in his book, uh, Strangers to Ourselves, he says most of us make free, rational decisions less than one-fifth of the time. The same invisible captivity that binds us to another's heart is what gets us to eat ourselves sick with pickles. It's what compels us to, to flirt with a girl in a cocktail dress at Whole Foods. No matter how adamant we are that we have free will, psychology confirms what Scripture contends and love songs all know. We're not actually free. And this is why so many Christian books of the advice type, tips for a happy, healthy marriage, become a better beloved, your best marriage now, all of those books ultimately offer cold comfort. You know, they are, as I've seen firsthand as a pastor, they're cruel. You know, we already live in a world where the aughts accuse us from all angles. You know, this is Mockingbird, so this is my obligatory Robert Capon quote. <laughs> Robert Capon says, advice only adds to our lives the glide angle of a dump truck. And it doesn't matter whether men are from Mars or, or women are from Venus, because the more fundamental dilemma, according to the Bible generally, and the New Testament specifically, is that every single refugee from Mars and Venus have their heads up their anus. <laughs> Any advice that assumes less is bullshit. Tips alone are no different than the crowd who says to Jesus, get down off your cross. You know, it assumes resurrection happens all on its own. But even resurrection, we speak of in the passive voice, God raised him up. He didn't do it on his own. Resur relationship advice is like telling a captive, free yourself. Be your own chain breaker and make your way through the wilderness. And we need more than coaching or good counsel. 
Advice alone can't get us to love aright. You know, we're, we're people who need to be delivered. That neither mate in a marriage is truly free makes it all the more insane that we insist that love in a marriage must always be a reciprocal two-way affair. Reciprocal love first requires redemption from captivity. And if the Bible is to be believed, only grace can set us free. And one-way love is the TNT that can break free Break us free from the cages we can't see. You know, take it from me, even a, a brush with death can't scare us straight. You know, for a long time I thought I was going to die. And when I realized I wasn't going to die yet, when I got my, my bone marrow results back after a year of stage serious chemo, and I realized that the inevitable wasn't yet, I was so freaking grateful to God. I felt so thankful that I promised a vow to God. For the gift of my life, I would offer the gift of my faithfulness. It's true. I know it sounds cheesy. I stared at myself in the mirror at my oncologist's bathroom, just like you see characters in a movie do, face water dripping down my face, staring at myself in the mirror. I splashed water on my face, and I made sure I wasn't daydreaming. And then looking at myself in the mirror, I swore that from here on out, I would be a perfect Christian. No more snark or, or sarcasm. No more dark cynicism. No more cussing or anger. No more can't-be-bothered apathy or, or little white lies. You know, God had rescued me from death, and so I promised to the men's room mirror, I will never sin again. I actually said that. I will never sin again. And I meant it. And I did a pretty good job of it. Until I walked out of the bathroom. <laughs> Over to the elevator. The elevator at my doctor's office, no matter the time of day, it's like the DMV was outsourced to supervise the final solution. It's a, a constipated, huddling mass of people frantic with their self-importance. And so I waited and I waited as the elevator would come and close, come and close, each time too crowded for me. But I was a good Christian. I kept my vow. I was patient. I did not think any dark thoughts in my heart. I did not sin. And so I was doing a pretty good job, and my turn was next. I was right there at the front of the line. But as soon as the elevator doors opened, this old guy with wispy white hair and an oxygen mask out of nowhere wedged a, a walker in between me and the elevator doors. And like he was Patrick Ewing, he threw a varicose elbow at me, pushing me out of the way to wait for another elevator even longer. And then he, he looked at me as the elevator doors closed between us, and he smirked. <laughs> and if anyone had been able to read my mind in that moment, I would have been whistled for a flagrant foul. <laughs> and then on my way home from the doctor, I stopped at Starbucks for a coffee, and I was standing at the counter about to pay. And next to me, at the other register, a, a homeless man poured coins out of an empty Fritos bag. And coming up short, he looked over at me and he asked if I had any money. And without thinking about it, without meaning to, just reflexively, which says a lot about me, 
just reflexively I said, I'm sorry, I don't have any cash. My words were like still hanging thick in the air when I looked down at my wallet, which had a, a wad of wrinkled five and ten sticking out of it like a bouquet of dirty green flowers. And so not only had I lied, not only had I refused charity, I'd managed to lie and stiff Jesus who said, whenever you do it to the poor, you've done it to me. Not to mention, fearing, sw- sw- swearing false oaths is one of the Ten Commandments, and so this whole, like, vow thing I had done was a sin, too. And leaving Starbucks, I, I accidentally cut a guy off in traffic. It was an accident, not a sin, but when he rolled his window down to offer his opinion of me at the traffic light, and when he offered his opinion of my mother at the next traffic light, and when he described everything he thought I deserved to do to myself at the light after that, did I turn the rhetorical cheek? Did I forgive his trespass against me? Did I forgive him 70 times 7? Did I offer to walk a mile in his jackass shoes? (laughs) No. No. I I said goodbye to him with a one-fingered wave and a sarcastic smile. (laughs) On my way home, I made the mistake of going to the little Soviet Safeway just down the road from my house. And I was in the express line, the, the 15 items or less line, behind this blue-haired woman who had 28 items in her cart. 28. I know because she was moving so slowly, I had time to count the 28 items in her cart at least 28 times while we stood in the, the 15 items or less aisle. But I didn't say anything. I didn't sigh out loud or point to the express line sign that she should have been able to see since it was nearly as big as her permanent. (laughs) No, I I didn't complain. I didn't gripe that I had places to go and and people to see. And and I didn't complain when she pulled out a stack of wrinkled, mostly expired coupons trying to haggle the price down. No, I kept my vow. I was Jesus-y good. But when it came time to pay, the old lady reached into her purse, the purse uh, the size of El Salvador, and after reaching in it it for like forever, what did she pull out? Checkbook. (laughs) Checkbook. It was big, and it was fat, and it had like eight rubber bands wrapped around it, and old deposit slips sticking out everywhere. And after she searched for her favorite pen, and she filled the the check out like she was signing a a Syrian peace treaty, and then she carefully tore the check out of the checkbook, and then she marked the transaction down in the register, and and, and then with cross for puzzle care, and then then finally she handed the check to the teenager working in the cash register, the teenager who clearly had never seen nor processed a check in his life. Oh my lord! You should just keep a goat in that purse because the barter system would be a quicker way to pay. (laughs) I did not say to myself, God rescued me from death and still my new life of sinless perfection or just self-improvement, my new life of sinless self-improvement was shorter lived than a Trump White House staffer. And later that evening when Allie got home, I told her about my vow and about how I could not keep it even as long as her work day. And I didn't play any of it for yucks. I just told her. And she smiled at me anyway, tender, not teasing, offering an unspoken, undeserved love that felt like 
a liberation. Of course you couldn't keep it, she said. I know you. You're not exactly an enigma. She put her head on my chest, hugging me. I love you, she said. Now make me dinner. Yes, ma'am. And strike what I said earlier about against advice giving. And because here's some. And this isn't just marriage advice. It's Christian advice. Advice on, on how to see other humans in light of the gospel. Here it goes. Seeing others as Allie sees me, as bound and, and unfree. It's the easiest way to find patience and empathy for others. It's the easiest way to, to find a way to show another a love they do not deserve. You know, it's when you mistakenly think people are free that you, you get pissed off at them. When you see people as active agents of everything in their lives, choosing the crap decisions they make, then you confuse what they do for who they are. You know, and I know this. I only know a few of you, but I know this. You're just like me. You all have your own Angelina Jolies. You all have your own jar of pickles. You're not an enigma, but you have plenty of them in your life. And if you're married, your spouse already knows it to be true. The only consistent thing about you is your inconsistency. You're just like me. The only fix for what ails us in our life with another is our willingness to receive and reciprocate a mercy that is as unmerited as it is unexpected, which means often it'll stick in your craw, striking you somewhere between uncomfortable and offensive. You see, when you say I do to another, you're not promising I can. You're not assessing an ability innate to you. You know, instead of the, the tit-for-tats that comes so naturally to us, by your I do, you're pledging your willingness to volley and serve a grace that comes so unnaturally to us that it first had to come as Jesus. The love that can make marriage work between I do and death, in other words, is the love with which Christ loved us. A love that died for us while we yet sucked. Now, marriage is a means of God's grace. That's what we say in the church. God gets to us with his grace through the grace our lowercase b beloved gives us. And forget all the, the be fruitful and multiply stuff, the, the family values people vomit onto your TV. For my money, this is like the only Christian foundation to anything like marriage. Like John the Baptist pointing his long, bony finger away from himself and onto Jesus, the forgiveness offered to you by your spouse is a sacrament of that permanent forgiveness provided by Jesus' passion. You know, just as I say with bread and wine at the altar table every week, the promise of his passion is that it delivered us from captivity to our propensity to screw things up. And when Allie and I got married... Back in 2001, I, got, I volunteered to file our taxes for our first joint return. I was a, a graduate student. She was the one working to put me through seminary. 
and doing the taxes, it, it struck me as a fair and, and thoughtful division of labor. It, it's just math, right? I remember saying. Only I also had a paying gig at a small church as a part-time pastor. And clergy taxes can be a, a conundrum. Fine print that nobody walks you through in between New Testament Greek and systematic theology. You know, confused, I, I put the tax return away to do another day. It never came. Our insides are tricky. We're remarkably deft at deceiving even ourselves. And whether I forgot to file them or avoided it altogether, I, I can't say for sure. What I can vouch as the truth is that when Allie followed up and asked if I'd done the taxes, I lied. Yep, I said reflexively. And we said no more about it. And again, I, I can't say for sure. I thought no more about it. Until the following spring when the lie, like the interest owed, seemed to have compounded tenfold. Too big a lie to confront, I simply repeated it. I, I shelved the 1040 behind some old bills. When she asked again if I'd filed it, I said, sure. Still skeptical about my goodness. You know, the devil made me do it. it can sound like a crappy excuse, but captivity, I think, a lot of times is the best explanation for us. Now consider this. Even though I was determined to tell her the truth, I lied to her. And I kept on lying to her. I don't want her to think I'm a liar who can't be trusted. That could hurt our relationship. So I'll just lie to her about it. I thought to myself while ordering a Frosty. <laughs> I mean, I legitimately thought that sounded like a rational course of action. Or try this one on for size. You know, back when I was a kid, during the bad old days of my parents' relationship, my dad had perpetrated the very same pretense, leaving my mom holding an outstanding IOU from the IRS. She couldn't pay it. Her dad and my grandpa had to bail her out. And the, the federal government was the only onlooker who would have considered their marriage a, a joint venture at that point. You know, Allie and I were a year into our marriage when I discovered I'd become the man whom I'd begrudged all my growing up years. You know, as a pastor, you hear church folks gossip all the time about how the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. What you never think about is, is, is how that apple learns to forgive its providence. Forgive those whence it came. You know, like that yarn about getting tangled up in the deceptions we weave, I, I kept the lie about having uh, paid our taxes going for the, for the first several years of our marriage, and eventually the truth of it became too big not to leak out all over our marriage. You know, I, I never knew what couples mean when they say they have work to do in their relationship. I never understood that until then. The tears in her eyes confirmed that she'd spied the treason in my own, confirming for me that I owed more than back taxes, plus interest. I'd committed penalties against more than the IRS. And so rightly, every spring fence sparked a rehearsal of the betrayal. And the months in between, anything that hinted at even a little white lie conjured up a bigger one between us. You know, on the outside, we were fine. And after a while, we were, we were fine again. You know, but, but on the inside, on the inside, I loathed myself. 
I don't know about my cholesterol, but whenever I ventured too far inside, I'd, I'd strike up against shame in no time. After I got stage serious chemo, I went on medical leave for a long while. And so I wasn't working, and so I volunteered to do the taxes one spring. And I discovered that I'd accidentally underpaid on the gifts we had received to help with my gargantuan medical bills. I shit a brick. And instantly, I feared this would be the keystone that brought our whole marriage down. And it symbolized too much cumulative baggage between us. It was too severe a case of post-tax stress disorder for our marriage to survive, I fear. It sounds hyperbolic, but I'm not exaggerating when I say that I I sweated telling her about the tax bill more than I I did telling her about my cancer. The doctor had promised I didn't do anything to get the cancer. Tumors, at least, weren't my fault. I met her outside in the driveway when she came home, and I told her, and she asked how much, and she nodded. It's okay, she said. I forgive you. Thanks for telling me. You know, not until I heard her say it, this is important, not until I heard her say, I forgive you, did I feel free to say, I'm sorry. Her forgiveness preceded my ability to repent. You know, nothing convinces you more that you bring nothing to the table, like a lifetime of sitting at a supper table across from the spouse and seeing yourself as she sees you. And yet, and yet I'm loved. You know, my wife sees all the ways I'm still no different than that first I do, and still she says I do every day. Seeing that she loves me all the same, I see in her a whole new light. I can't believe you keep saying I do to me. I've told her more than once across the pillows. It's, it's neither a line for a love ballad, but, but, and it's not the stuff of November rain, but, but it's, it's true. I can't believe you say I do to me. You know, Allie's the, the tonic against the, all the bullshit that comes natural to a captive like me. She's, she inoculates me against, you know, my slippery self-flattery. She sees me as, as I am. You know, like God, she sees how much I am still as I've always been. And she grants to me a goodness that her life with me amply shows is not there. You know, were I to go spelunking inside me, nothing I found would corroborate what she's willing to reckon unto me. Which is to say, she's grace. And thanks to her, thanks to God through her, I'm something less than free, but I'm a lot more of the opposite than I was before. When it comes to faithfulness in a marriage, we tend to to think not fooling around is is the baseline definition. And sure, someone who flirts with a girl at the fishmonger at Whole Foods, not fooling around is probably a good place to start. but, But even more so, Even more so, faithfulness means clinging to the promise inherent in our spouse's undeserved regard. Like a drowning man, I I hold on to the news that I am not what I do, I am not what I have done. 
You're just as good. I am not what I will surely do despite my best efforts to do otherwise. I am what my wife says I am. I'm forgiven. I'm loved beyond deserving. And if I am what my beloved says, then maybe I can trust what the capital B beloved says about me too. You know, learning how to make love again after a, a year of chemo-induced impotence, I, I know that's awkward, but it's an awkward experience too, and hard, wink, wink. <laughs> and it's not easy. And after another night of finishing before we were done, I reiterated, I can't believe you don't just trade me in. Go ahead, I'll be fine, I said dramatically. I'll find comfort in the arms of an elderly woman. And, and since we're here, when I say elderly woman, I'm thinking Fleming Rutledge. <laughs> I, I can't believe you don't just trade me in, I tell her. You're an idiot, she said. And I think, smiled in the dark. Hold me, I asked her. Silly, I know. I love you, she whispered. You know, I tell it to engaged couples all the time. What you're doing by saying I do to another is bestowing on another person the power to do incredible damage to you with nothing other than their words. I mean, we are made in the image of the God who makes through words. And we can unmake people's worlds with the power of our words. And my wife's words have the power to kill me with their candor, but her words can also make me alive again with their gratuity. You know, God's words of grace on a lover's lips, they can bridge the, the distance that can creep into any marriage bed. Indeed, a, a lover's grace, I think, is the closest analogy we have to how God in Christ closes the distance between heaven and earth. God's words of grace and forgiveness, in other words, they collapse time, making the one who loves us beyond deserving more than spouse. And they are our primary preacher of a permanent pardon. As I say as a preacher, I offer it to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.